That was beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Book of Revelation, chapter 21. If you'd want to take a Bible and turn there, we'll get there in a a couple minutes. Revelation 21. Through the centuries, there have been many uh, assertions made about Jesus. Uh, But one of the most provocative and and even startling to our senses is is surely the suggestion that Jesus was married. Uh, That thought has come up from time to time, usually because somebody suggests a a new way to interpret some passage or or maybe some new fragment of ancient writing is discovered and uh, They want to make something of that. The question has been around for a lot longer, I realize, but it last made headlines, I believe it was about 2012, when a new uh, ancient, I think it was dated to the 4th century, an ancient fragment was found, uh, and even though uh, the scholars who presented it admitted that it didn't really prove anything, uh, some felt that it spoke to the fact that Jesus was married. Um, and the person who is almost always suspected of being Mrs. Jesus is Mary Magdalene. Um, the truth is, though she is an intriguing person, uh, Mary Magdalene has much more supposed about her than is stated in the Bible. Uh, Things like the musical, you know, Jesus Christ Superstar and the book, The Da Vinci Code, they have taken great liberties in their presentations of Mary Magdalene uh, to the point that you have probably heard of some of those and maybe you have even believed that they were biblical, uh, like that she was a prostitute or that she was in love with Jesus. Um, None of that appears in the Bible. Uh, All we know for sure about Mary is that first, she was one of a few women who financially supported Jesus' ministry. Second, she witnessed Jesus' death, and she was one of the first, if not the first, to see him resurrected. Third, We know that her life was radically transformed by Jesus, who had cast at least seven demons out of her. We read that in Luke chapter 8. And then fourth, based on Acts chapter 1, she was probably, we believe she was probably among those who awaited the descent of the Holy Spirit after Jesus returned to, to heaven. And that's really all we know for sure about her. So, the question is, why have so many other things been suggested about her and about her relationship with Jesus? Um, Maybe the whole idea of seven demons is just too provocative a thought for us to leave alone. Uh, And since no more detail than that is given, uh, we tend to jump to conclusions about the specific types of sins that seven demons might drive a person to commit. 
maybe, since we're not told that Mary was or wasn't married herself, we can't resist trying to put her together with somebody. And even Jesus, you know, like some old busybody matchmaker might do. Uh, regardless of that, let me just say this. Believe what the Bible says about Mary, but don't allow mere guesses, no matter how well they're presented or how well they're written or appear in film, don't allow mere guesses to fill in the blanks about her, okay? And speaking of blanks, please understand that there is zero scriptural evidence to support Jesus being married. No mentions, no allusions, no even sideways glances toward Jesus being married. So you might wonder, why has this idea kept coming up through history? Um, About eight years ago, the National Catholic Reporter, of all places, suggested a few reasons why this may keep coming up. Uh, And these things that they said are really helpful to keep in mind about our perspective of many topics in in Scripture, but but particularly uh, this one. For example, they suggested first the fact biblical archaeology tends to prime people for surprises. We are ready to believe new things based on excavations in the Holy Land because there have been excavations that truly have yielded really remarkable artifacts that do provide insights, often unexpected insights, into Bible history. And so because we tend to value archaeological evidence, we, whether it's intentional or not, we sometimes try to make that evidence say or prove more than it really does. That's one reason. Second, uh, again, whether we realize it or not, or whether we admit it or not, Most of us prefer to think about Jesus as someone who is made in our image. Uh, We are more comfortable with a Jesus who is like us. So if we are not intentional and if we're not careful, that's what we assume. Just due to the remnants of self-interest that lie within us. We assume that Jesus is more like us. Some historians, usually liberal ones, have uh, over the past couple hundred years fed periodic quests for the historical Jesus or the real Jesus, finding the real Jesus. Uh, But if you look at those things, interestingly, tellingly, those sorts of explorations usually wind up giving us a Jesus that looks just like us. That's something Albert Schweitzer noted a century ago. We tend to want a Jesus that looks like us. Uh, Recently, within the past few decades, Jesus has been presented as a a successful businessman, a Marxist, a political zealot, a vegetarian, even as a gay man. But maybe most commonly, he's been presented as a man married and with children which is sort of a 1950s-style savior to appeal to middle-class America. 
And yet none of that can in any way be concluded from Scripture. Uh, So it takes work for us to remember that Jesus is not like us. Uh, We always have to check our self-interest at the door when we're making conclusions about Jesus. Okay. A third reason the issue of a married Jesus keeps coming up is that people tend to believe that, well... Every nice boy gets married eventually, right? I mean, we've tried to make Jesus the nice guy who lives next door. So, of course, he was married, and particularly so if he was Jewish, because every Jewish man marries and has a bunch of kids. Uh, That is an unreasonable stereotype, even for Jesus' day. Uh, People forget that in Jesus' day, there were monastic-like communities of celibate Jews. The Essenes, for example, were one. And they were highly, highly regarded. So, So to be single was, and to be single still is, an entirely viable, worthy, respectable calling. Our worth is not found in our marital status. Some people, sadly, have a hard time accepting that. Or remembering that, such that they even try to push it onto Jesus. I think a fourth reason we want to think of Jesus as being married is because, generally speaking, people like conspiracies. In fact, people like conspiracies more than they like facts. Uh, They'd rather imagine, because it's more fun to imagine, something juicy, edgy, It's more fun to do that than to believe the blatant, if unexciting, (laughs) truth. Uh, People are prone to wonder if there wasn't something else going on. You know, a cover-up maybe? Or maybe something else kind of flying under the radar. And that temptation is especially strong when it has to do with sexuality and chastity. I mean, you can, you can look back through the years, just recent years, from the Kennedy assassination, the moon landing, uh, UFOs, Bigfoot, Chupacabra, QAnon. People have a love affair with conspiracy theories. And in a time and an era that's marked by deep mistrust of institutions, including the institutional church, any claim that is made is made suspect, you see. And then uh, last, certainly not least, I think some want Jesus to be married because the emergence of women's rights, uh, though a huge development of modernity, due in in large part to Christian influence, uh, that was not widely embraced in Jesus' day. (laughs) Jesus' day was different. The maleness of the 12 disciples underlines this. I'm not saying it's right. I'm saying it's the way it was. And even though Jesus did more than any other person in history to emphasize the worth of women, some today who see everything through the lens of women's rights push those preoccupations too far with their imaginations of a Mrs. Mary Magdalene Jesus. Those are just some of the reasons why you see this non-biblical idea of a married Jesus. And frankly, plenty of other non-biblical Ideas You see them come up over and over again through the ages. So let me say again, the fact is there's nothing in the New Testament 
And there's nothing in any early Christian history or tradition that remotely supports a married Jesus. There is, however, much talk in the New Testament about Jesus having a wife, or more commonly, a bride, which, of course, would be the church, uh, the body of true believers, the whole gathering of those who follow Jesus. And that's what we're going to talk about for a few weeks. Jesus' wife, the church. The idea of it, the significance of it, the importance of it, the characteristics of it. Uh, We're going to look at why, of all possible metaphors, that of a wife, a bride, would become the image that links Jesus to his people. Uh, And by way of preview, let me just say this. That choice of, of metaphor really says a lot more about Jesus than it says about the church. Um, but it does say plenty about the church and her value and what Jesus thinks of her, which suggests to us that we ought to think well of her too. Um, and this is important because it seems to me that even we who are part of her may from time to time think less of Jesus' bride than he would prefer. Uh, Let me assure you that we don't want Jesus to ever find us insulting his wife, okay? Uh, That's where we're heading in the days to come. But today, I just want to mention a couple quick things here about Revelation 21. Uh, I am pretty sure that this is the only, I'm not positive, but I'm pretty sure this is the only place in the Bible where the church, or anybody else, is explicitly called Jesus' wife. In fact, as Nadera read it, it may have actually taken you by surprise to hear it or to see it in your Bible. Uh, But let me assure you, it's not just some mistaken English translation. Uh, The Greek word is gunaika, which explains why all the translations, all that I looked at anyway, A bunch of English translations use the English word wife. Uh, And actually, the word nymphen is in the same sentence, uh, which is the Greek word for bride, verse 9 there. John reports of one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. So what's going on here? Well, this is all part of John's vision, you know that, Uh, an angel showing him in apocalyptic and prophetic style some of the things to come in the last days. This was all meant, this vision of John's, it was meant not just to inform, but it was meant to encourage and, and to hearten John alone, exiled on an island for his faith. And not just John, but all those in the days to come who would hear these words. This was an encouraging word to believers, Revelation was. The interesting thing here is the tremendous contrast that the angel presents. Just, just a little bit before this, these verses here, back in chapter 17 and 18, we find what we presume to be the same angel showing John a different vision. Uh, The vision of a prostitute, in fact. One who is unfaithful 
who has deceived many around the world. And it's a vision of her destruction. We have here in 21 a vision of the beauty and the endurance of those who embrace God. But we had just before this the vision of the ugliness and of the destruction of those who reject him. The angel is trying to say to John, there are both in the world. Just as there have been both through the ages. There have been persons, there have been groups of persons who are faithful to God. And there have been persons and groups of persons who are not faithful to God. There are people who work with God. There are people who work against God. There are people who believe in him. And there are people who deny him. And there are people who have linked themselves to Jesus, God's Savior, He's referred to here as the lamb, the sacrifice for our sins. And there are people who have pushed him away. So this is nothing new. You see, the prophets all through Judaism realized this and they predicted this. Jesus himself understood it. That there will be people with him and there will be people against him. There would be people for him and there would be people who reject him. Jesus understood that. He didn't like it. But he realized this is simply the reality of persons who possess a truly free will. The same sort of will God has. The sort of will that makes us like him in our constitution and in our image. And even though he invites all to himself, some will choose him, some will reject him. Those who will choose him, the faithful, he will embrace and he will make his very own. Those who reject him to follow other gods, including the God of self and the God of stuff. Self-worship, stuff worship. Those who reject him, they are going to suffer the consequence of their choice. And that is what the angel is assuring John of. In these visions. And here he uses images of cities. The faithful and the faithless. They're both presented as cities. The faithless is Babylon. A city, nation. Long associated. Not only with the rejection of the God of Israel. The one true God. But they were a people who actively persecuted. And destroyed those who loved and served God. That's the prostitute. You see, the unfaithful one. It's a people, it's a city full of ugliness and vileness and impurity, faithlessness, and it's going to be destroyed. It's destined for destruction. That's the vision of 17 and 18. But the faithful, they who are part of the city of God, the city of Jerusalem, they're a people of beauty because God has made them so. They are those who have chosen to follow their creator and their redeemer. And so they're experiencing redemption. They're being made new. They're being remade into all they were originally created to be. Full of purity and goodness and truth and light and life. Because they are full of God himself. That's the image. There's a tremendous splendor about this group of people. The city. Tremendous splendor. It's something John probably honestly has trouble communicating. Because in human terms, I mean, how do you, how do you even begin to describe the glory of God? 
Uh, verse 11 says, The city shone with the glory of God, and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. Today we might say it was bright as a laser. It was bright as one of those high-intensity headlights that blind you at night when they come toward you. You know, the glory, the brilliance that he saw is just beyond description. Why? Because God lives there. He lives in those who follow him. And so they are being made, and here they have been made, like him. They are his recreated people. They are clear and pure and bright and brilliant, completely uncorrupted by sin. You say, well, that that describes Jesus. Yes, it does. But the great news is, that also describes the people of Jesus. All who follow Jesus, who will be one day completely united with him as his bride. That's the people of Jesus. Living fully with him in the very presence of God himself. That is the church. We're not talking about a building. And friends, let me say, we're not talking about those who come into church buildings and just sit Sunday after Sunday and make no move toward Jesus, make no confession of Jesus, and in which there is no evidence of Jesus. Those aren't invited. They're not part of the city. The church is the collection of those who truly follow Jesus. All who truly follow Jesus. Those are the ones described here. Those are the ones destined for brilliance. Now the process has already begun in those who follow Christ now. Even now. If you're following Christ, you are being made pure. That's what the Spirit of Christ is trying to accomplish in our lives, even today. Purifying our minds, purifying our hearts, making us holy from the inside out. That's why when we're doing something that's contrary to Jesus and contrary to his character, that's why his Spirit says to us, hey, you shouldn't be doing that. We know it deep in our heart. We hear it. His Spirit says, you shouldn't be putting that. Into your heart. You shouldn't be doing that with your body. You shouldn't be putting that into your mind. That's how his spirit moves us toward purity. Toward his own brilliance. That's why his word says things like, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Set the example for believers in speech, conduct, love, faith, purity. Flee from sexual immorality. Put to death whatever is earthly. Within you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, covetousness, idolatry. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable. If there is, in any, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about those things. Renounce ungodliness. Renounce worldly passions. Live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age. All through the New Testament. There's a whole lot more than just that. But it's God's word telling us those things. Because to all who will listen to him, he is preparing us. We are becoming followers of Jesus. Are even now in training 
for brilliance. Because we are now and we are to be one day fully the very bride, the wife of Christ. All who are, all who have been, and all who will be in Jesus in days past, in days present, and in days to come. We're the bride of Christ. We are part of who John, right here, is describing and anticipating. <laughs> in our day-to-day, you, you hear about uh, the following of different earthly entities referred to as nations. Here's, here's what I mean. In the Pittsburgh area, where I'm from, you heard about Steeler Nation, you know, the black and gold. In Columbus, it's the Buckeye Nation, scarlet and gray. Here, it's about Wildcat Nation, right? Kentucky blue. Here, John is describing and presenting Jesus' nation. Clear, pure, shining, like the most magnificent jewels. Jesus' nation, all who follow, all who are faithful, all who trust and believe and live for him, like this magnificent city, God's city, in all its perfect glory, descending upon the earth. But you see, nation, the metaphor, it isn't enough. The city isn't enough. Our connection with Jesus is more than that. The connection of Jesus with those who follow him is so complete and so intimate and so permanent that it can only be adequately described as a marriage. We who are in Jesus, we are not merely his servants. We are not merely his subjects or his flunkies or his court or his people or his city or his nation. We who are in Jesus together With all who are in Christ, we are his wife. He is the groom and we are the bride. And all he does, he does with the goal of making us all we can possibly be. He is ours and we are his forever. You who are in Christ, that's who you are. We who are in Christ, that's who we are. That's who we're becoming, and that's who we will be forever, because we are just that valuable and beautiful to God. Do you know that about yourself? Do you understand that? You who are in Christ, do you understand that about your brothers and sisters in Christ? The people that you sit around who are truly following Jesus, the people in your family who are truly following Jesus, that's who they are. Friends, we need to learn this. We need to grasp this so we see Jesus for who he is. So we see and so we treat ourselves and each other as who we really are. People of great worth, great value, and great beauty to God. Not for our own glory, But all for the glory of Jesus, the one who made us, the one who is making us to be his bride. All for the glory of Jesus. Father, we thank you for this amazing creation 
the amazing plan, the amazing process, we, we tend to see it so narrowly, uh, but it's so much bigger. Lord, help us to see these words that you gave to John, this vision that you gave to him. Help us to be encouraged, help us to be challenged, and help any, even here this morning, who are not following Jesus. Father, speak to them about the urgency and about the truth of the things to come for those who follow him. Lord, thank you that we can be your people, that we can be your bride. In your name we pray, amen.